This is the second in three episodes that touch on genomic research. And today I'm extremely excited to have with us Stella Somieri. She's a biobanker for translational research. She's a research scientist and she knows a thing or two about ISO norms. Now, if you're not too familiar with the term biobanking, just before we start, we're going to describe a little bit to you what the facility does. So you can imagine it as a big repository. It is where a lot of human tissue that gets collected uh, in, in various hospitals gets to go and is stored for future research. These tissue come from patients who are kind enough to allow us to take whatever material that um, was brought out, you know, that was um, during surgery. And um, when the pathologist has taken what he wants, you know, from this material and done the diagnosis, usually they just toss, you know, what's left. And um, we would ask them to consent that that piece of tissue that would have been thrown out normally comes to us for research. And that's how it comes. So we have a number of study protocols that are out there for different kinds of studies. And um, so patients are approached, you know, and say, you know, there's a study going on that requires, say, for example, breast tissue or whatever. And um, we are asking if we can take, you know, what's left over after your diagnosis, because that has to be made very, very clear that we will not interfere, you know, with the clinical diagnosis. It's only what's left over. If the pathologist does not think there's enough, you know, to share for research, we would never, ever try to get tissue, you know, for research. So this is leftover discarded tissue, but we have to grab it as fast as possible because of maintaining the integrity of that tissue. And that's, you know, another story on its own. You're listening to Healthcare Focus, and I'm your host, Karina Paraskeev. Healthcare Focus is the podcast where we follow healthcare news and industry research so you don't have to. All right, so when you walk into the research center, it's pretty amazing as an experience because, first of all, you open the doors, and on your left is this big, big room with, with tanks, I guess. And as you walk through those doors and you find yourself in the hallway, you look on your left, you look on your right, and there's these very big rooms with very big metal cylinders in the middle of them. We in Wimba decided that these are very, these tanks contain very precious material. And we decided from the onset to make them as visible as you saw them. In other organizations, they are in the basement. Nobody really sees those tanks. But we decided from the beginning that we are going to make them a big part, you know, of what we do, because without those tissue samples, there's no research. And so we decided to make the glass walls, you know, and make, put them right up there. Because most places you go to, you have to go down the elevator to a basement with no windows. <laughs> you know, that's where they keep those tanks. So I'm happy that it caught your attention the way it did, because that was the whole purpose of doing this. <laughs> yeah, that's a very clever thing. Do, do people uh, very often step in who are maybe from outside uh, of this world? Do you get visitors? Oh, yes, yes. We have a lot of people coming in and touring the facility and getting um, a briefing, you know, of exactly what we do and how important, you know, those tissue specimens are, you know, for research in general. Can you tell us a little bit about, like, why they're attracted to this institute? What's so special about what you guys do there? 
Um, what we do, I think, first of all, it's maybe our location. You know, a small rural town in Pennsylvania doing what we do. I think that's usually the first attraction, because when we, um, when this institute started in 2000, and we would be ordering um, reagents from big companies and say Wimber Research Institute, they're like, what, where, you know, that kind of thing. So the attraction is then the next thing is for what we do, because being that, you know, we have focused on actually making sure that we have the material we need for research, because others would be searching, you know, for the tissue from a wide variety of sources. But we decided that in the... Um, formation of the institute we would have this as a core you know unit of the institute because then we can manage what we are using for research we manage the collection we manage the storage and the processing and so we could um, make sure that at all times we have what we need you know to do the work that we need to do so that's an attraction because not every um Organization. Every research organization has the resource, the material, you know, the, the specimens to do the research. So yeah, and that's a very interesting point you raise because very often we think of research as the challenge itself, right? It's how do I, you know, measure the data and, and analyze that data and so on. And I think very few of us actually realize, yeah, there's also a challenge in obtaining the data in the first place. And how are you going to get your hands on those pieces? And it really comes from there, right? It's a bit like the diagnosis when you're looking at um, doctors. If the diagnosis is wrong, then the whole treatment is wrong. I, I feel in research, it's a little bit similar. If those specimens aren't complete, if they're not really, um, you know, coming from a long longitudinal type of study, then you're, you're missing pieces. You can't really make sense of it in, in the best way possible, right? Yeah, yeah, you're very right. Because with this um, kind of setting, you can follow a patient all through the patient's life if the patient maintains the same physician, you know, because if the patient comes in and signs up for any of the protocols and comes back five years later, you know, and, you know, we have it in the database, we can continue, you know, collecting information about that patient and knowing, you know, what has happened over over time. So it's, um, it's, it's a very unique resource that we have. Yeah, definitely. And I think you, you just mentioned the physicians in this story, and I think that's interesting too, right? Because when you come in, I mean, you have your idea, you know, you want that sample, but ultimately you're working with a hospital and physicians who have their own flows and their own ways of doing certain things. Yeah, in every hospital, they focus on the patient care. So when you introduce research into that hospital, it's not usually the most exciting thing. You go, you're disrupting, you know, the regular routine of a hospital. So I would tell you it usually isn't the easiest thing, you know, to introduce research into a hospital to say, you know, we need, we, we, you're going to be collecting tissue that's going to be used for research. So you take a while to train the people. You start from, you know, the entry point where the patients come in. And if you're, most of the time, you want to collect the blood. That's another thing that we did uniquely here where we collected blood from every patient. You know, we had a blood draw from every patient who, you know, was going in for surgery because we felt that, you know, you needed that blood sample to also, you know, study something about, you know, the, um, the fluid 
aspect of the patient. So you have to go in and see how the general workflow of the hospital is, then sit down and introduce you know, what you want to do, and have the hospital staff work with you to see how they can adjust you know, to fit what you need. Now, because we work with a, a lot of hospitals based on, you know, all the um, um, bodies that we work with, because we have many organizations working with us, so it all depends on the setting. Sometimes there has to be extra hands provided to the hospital because it just cannot add research to it. So sometimes there has to be a cost to bring in more staff to manage some of the things that you need done. But the most important thing is having a plan that works well with the hospital so that they can allow new uh, steps to be added you know, to what they do. And so you want to consent the patient. Can the hospital do it? Do you have to get somebody to do that consenting? That's what you have to look to. You need the blood draw. Can the nurses who are dealing with the patient do it? Or do you have to do it at a different point before the day of the surgery, you know? And these are all the things you have to take into consideration. And then at the surgery suite, you have to work to make sure that there is information. People there can get that tissue very, very fast to pathology so that the pathologist can very, very quickly get what he needs and quickly you know, hand over what, you know, is going in for research. And there has to be documentation all through this process. We need to know the time the blood was drawn because we will record the time the blood arrived at our center and when we processed and stored it. The same thing with the tissue. We at least will need some documentation of the moment the tissue came out of the patient, you know, like a date stamp, you know, on the, um, you know, on, on a document saying the tissue came out at this time, the tissue arrived pathology at this time, the tissue arrived the um, biobank at this time, processed and stored at this time. All of those things are important because that time frame, we still don't have a 100% complete picture of how, you know, the different time frames affect the different analytes that, you know, we are looking for. We know that every analyte will react differently. And so it's not a one um, cap fits all. And that's why we need all these time points recorded so that at, when you now use that tissue for research, you can interpret your results based on this pre-analytical variables that you have recorded you know, all along the way, the life cycle of the um, tissue. So that's where it becomes very difficult to get as many hospitals as you would like to working with you because it's a disrupting um, exercise. But, you know, in a university setting where there's a university hospital, it's easy, you know, to um, bring that kind of thing to bear in, say, a military setting where, you know, everything is done by law and order, maybe. But think about the very general community hospital and so on. It becomes a very difficult um, place, you know, for you to institute such new um, operational um, operations, you know, to be able to get tissue for, for research, yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting because I'm hearing two things. On the one hand, I'm hearing that there's 
some level of um, adaptation on the part of the hospital that receives uh, this new project. But I'm also hearing that there's a portion of customization in some way too, in the way that you are interfacing with each of these hospitals. So I guess scaling really is a challenge when you're thinking of um, how to adopt the method methods, you know, ecosystem-wide. Yeah, the, the customization is something that we, I don't know if everybody does it, but I have found from my years, you know, of being in this job, that if you go in and try to force something on a hospital, you won't get the cooperation you need. I usually go in and learn how they operate, tell them what I would like to see, and then work with them to establish those things in the way and manner that will work for them but will also give me the end result you know that I want because I can't compromise my quality but at the same time they have to be comfortable doing what they are doing and that's where the cost comes in because sometimes you have to give them what they need to be able to meet you know the goals that you have you know for your project. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And when you're looking at how it evolved over time, today you know roughly when you stepped in, in, into a hospital, okay, they might need this and that, and maybe this is how the process works. But I'm guessing it was a learning curve because you mentioned way back in the year 2000, I believe you said. That's that's a long road to travel. Did things evolve over time? Do you learn, oh, okay, this process really works or that, that might be a standard toolkit we want to give them? Yeah, I would tell you it took me... A year to go through everything I have told you and actually see a process finally working in one of the community hospitals you know the very first community hospital that you know we tried to which was you know a sister hospital right here in Wimber because you also are assessing the success of what you have established you know and so I can clearly say that It took 12 months for me to sit back and say, wow, it finally seems to be working. People know why they are doing what they are doing and they are happy, you know, with the workflow that we have put in place. So it's um, it's a task that there's no, you, you can't go in thinking it's, you know, just like that. It, it's not just, it, do, it just doesn't happen, you know. And every environment is different. You have to, you know, try to meet the needs of that environment and for success. That, that's interesting too because there is a, an element of variance and variability in, in every project or endeavor you're, you're going to take and if you zoom out a little bit and you look at this internationally, um, as you said you can't compromise those standards so how do you reconcile the fact that every environment might be unique but there's still standards that need to be defined perhaps and enforced certainly? Usually you, um, like you said you can't compromise the standards So what would happen is maybe what you get would be so much smaller because in a day, they can only do that for two patients, even though they had 50 patients that day. And there's nothing you can do. So you take the two patients, for as long as you get the two samples you get, uh, meet your standards. So you take it and you go, you know. So that's really the price you pay, you know. And um, it, 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 just like any other situation where you try, 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 and it just doesn't work. Sometimes there are some places you go to and it just doesn't work, you know. Or the pain you go through is for such a much, much longer time. 
because you would find something not done well and you have to either discard, you know, something because it just didn't, you know, meet the standards. So you, you just have to work through, you know, work it out and see what happens. And um, in some places, they would tell you, I can't give you the tissue. I'm only going to collect blood because this other one is too much trouble. There's nothing you can do, you know. There's nothing you can do. You just take, you know, what comes to you. But like I said, in certain organizations, if, say, like for here, the CEO of the hospital is the CEO of the institute, so it makes it a bit easier for us to maneuver, you know, the hospital. But, you know, when you're going to completely different grounds, it becomes a different ball game, you know, and you just have to watch what comes your way or what you can get out of, you know, that relationship. That makes a lot of sense. Now, you're, you're describing a lot the collection process where there can um, be a lot of issues in terms of participation or, or ability or just time available to, to help out on that front. Um, there's also the actual process of getting the, the tissue from whichever location they've collected at to the research institute. That also follows, you know, a whole set of standards and um procedures to maintain integrity. So most of the tissue we use for research are usually frozen. Like you saw the freezers, you know, come in the cold. There's tissue that can be transported at room temperature, which is the formalin fixed paraffin embedded, but we don't use that much of it for research because the um, nucleic acid is, you know, it's um, disintegrated in that um, situation. So we prefer the frozen tissue, the blood, you know, you process it and you freeze it. So the challenge here is the cold chain, which, you know, today it's been mastered. We don't have a problem. The courier companies can transport um, um, dry ice, but you have to train people on the international, you know, transportation standards for that, you know, and that's not a problem. There's a whole source of... Um, training opportunities so if you have a site that collects processes and puts it in a freezer before sending it to you to us then we have to make sure that there's somebody there who is trained on the shipping of biological materials so we have standard operating procedures showing all that you have to do so you have the standard of being qualified you know to ship And then you have the standard of what we, the biobankers, say is a way for you to package, you know, this tissue. Because it has to be sent by courier, overnight courier, preferably, you know, next day delivery. We have standards as to the time frame for mailing. You can't mail anything to us after a Wednesday because we don't want something to arrive Friday evening and everyone's gone. There's no one to receive it. So these are all the instructions that would be in a standard operating procedure. You know, you have snow, we have all these weather conditions. If there's a weather condition, don't even attempt, you know, mailing um, anything to us. So those are all the standards that have to be followed to make sure that, you know, the material arrives safe and sound. And then those receiving the material have to check it and ensure that everything arrives safely. Because right there and then you report any, you know, discrepancies, anything that, you know, went wrong in terms of the cooling, you know, the cold chain. And of course, even the samples that 
you were expecting. So what we, we one of the other things we do is if someone says we're sending you samples, we're shipping samples tomorrow, you will in advance send a list of what you say you are sending us. And so we have to cross-check and confirm that everything you say you're sending has arrived. Believe me, sometimes one or two things that you didn't have in your list arrives and we have to let you know. <laughs> or one or two things you say were in the package are not there, you know. But these are things that um, you don't take lightly. Those are documented and, you know, discussed and corrected, you know, right away. Because you think about it. Every material represents a donor, a condition, you know, and we want to make sure that we have exactly what we are supposed to have, not something that has been mislabeled or, you know, missed, you know, the location is missed or whatever, because you want to always use the right material for your study, because when you design a study, you're focusing on something. And that thing represents a disease condition, you know, um, age of the patient, status, and all those things. And so you want to make sure that that tissue that is in those freezers are true representation of, you know, the conditions that, you know, from which they came, and that every single one is well labeled, identified, and you don't have any mix up. So you saw over 10 freezers there. My job is to make sure that everything in that place is where it should be. And when I pick it and give it to a researcher, it's a true one that the researcher expects me to be given to him or her. And that's a daunting task. That's a daunting task. <laughs> it does sound like it. Um, th does it ever happen that you actually get something you, uh, not, not get something you, you didn't expect, but do you ever get certain conditions or, or you know, uh, like variances that you weren't specifically looking for, but now that you do have them on hand, you realize, hey, that might actually be a great research project. And then you might create something new that you, you didn't have going in your normal stream. Does that ever happen? Yes. Most of the time, or once in a while, you have a voila moment because it's not exactly what you thought you were looking for. In fact, my um, PhD here said to me, he was looking at a data, you know, I gave him to look at, and he said, we were trying to look at the expression pattern of proteins, trying to see whether the freezing condition affects them. That is, if you put them in the liquid nitrogen vessels, a minus 80, which is not as cold as a liquid nitrogen. And when I store it immediately, and when I look at the proteins from the moment I, you know, as soon as I collect the sample from the patient, and if that same sample, I put it in the freezer for one year and pull it out, is there a difference? So he was looking at, he was seeing a pattern that was like the opposite of what he expected. And he said to me, Dr. Sumian, why is this this way? I said, that's why we're doing the research. I have no idea why, you know, it's looking like the opposite. It's giving me the opposite picture. But you know what? Data speaks for itself. So if we are sure that what we did was right, then this is what we are seeing. We just need to now see if we can understand and explain what it is. 
sometimes maybe you need to do it again and again and again. And then I told him, I said, we have more of the samples in the freezer. So maybe if one year is not giving us a story, let's go pull out the ones we have because now it's about two years and maybe the pattern would be more easily explainable. But that's, yeah, you're right. Sometimes you really can't even explain what is coming out of your research. But you just have to keep dwelling on it, you know, and thinking through and then reading and researching to see if you have an explanation to what you're seeing. But if you're sure that you did the right work, you should never doubt your work, you know, because it isn't always what you think it's supposed to be. If not, it's not research. And it's um, fascinating to me when I listen to you speak because I come from an industry, I was in retail and tech and, you know, like a, a business consultant, basically. And to get budget for discovery is something that is almost a luxury, right? Because people always want to know, what am I signing off? What's the deliverable you're promising? And I think a lot of things happen when you do have that little window you can create and take the time to explore a little bit differently or a little bit more or something that caught your eye and you think there, there's, there might be something here worth exploring. And I think that's a beautiful portion of research is, of course, you have the, the mandate that you're given and the funding goes towards a, a specific objective. But I think there's an openness to noticing maybe some things along the way that might change a little bit the plan or might add a little bit to the scope or, or might downright maybe turn into a new project by, by itself. And it's interesting you talk about funding and research and development. That's where the biobanking industry has a very big challenge because nobody really funds a biobank. So, but without the material, how do you do the research? And I know you weren't going to talk about challenges of the bio, but I just felt I should bring it out now because funding is one of the big... You heard all I told you. It all cost money. And so even if I was, say, standalone biobank, just thinking I want to do this to um, benefit research, I'll have a problem because where will I get the money to do it? We're just lucky that, you know, we have um, bodies that have funded, you know, the whole um, activity here because they understand the importance and the tissue that we collect are for unique and specific projects, you know, of this funding bodies. That's why we can survive. So, but when you think about someone just saying, okay, I'm going to go around and collect samples and store them and everybody can come and get, and it's like an impossible exercise, but it's a needed exercise. I usually say the biobank should be like the Red Cross. People donate blood, you know, and you can share it, you know, but unfortunately, you know, you pay for, even when it's given free, you pay for it. But the biobank hasn't even gotten to anything close to that, you know. It's money, money all through because the process of collecting, the storage, everything is so um, cost-intensive, you know, But then there's really nobody that, you know, there's no entity that recognizes that money should be pumped, you know, into this. Yes, governments are doing it, you know, and um, you have um, biobanks like in Europe, you know, you have country uh, sponsored, you know, biobanks. But still, it, it hasn't gotten to the point where scientists are really being given what they want. Because if you don't belong 
to the affiliated organization, you can't get the specimen that is being collected, you know, and there's a whole lot more uh, scientists who don't have affiliation with a biobank to be able to get, you know, samples to, to work with. So that, you know, is one of the biggest challenges of the, of the industry. But I, I know that, you know, we talk about it a lot in our meetings and so on, but, you know, we're yet to see the solution, you know, that will become... Uh, that would change, you know, the situation forever. But hopefully, you know, at some point. But I have no idea how soon that would be. <laughs> is, is this specific to biobanking itself, or is it something you see in research in general that, that obtaining that data is, is harder, or is it because it's so new and, and no one really has thought of a structure in the society to, to make this happen? I think it's research. You can say yes, you have. A whole bunch of funding bodies for research here in the United States. You have the um, NIH. Not that is the easiest, you know, uh, place to get the money from. But you really, the NIH actually funds a couple of biobanking initiatives. There's one called the um, um, CHTN Cooperative Human Tissue Network, where they they have zones and there are bodies that are funded to collect samples and researchers can tap into that source. In fact, we here provide samples to the eastern, you know, um, zone of this body and it's very much subsidized. So if you have an NIH project, you can tap into the CHTN uh, tissue resource and if what you want is there, you can get it. But if you don't have an NIH grant, it may not be as easy. The NIH grantor is first, you know, then you are second. So that's one thing, and that's fantastic, you know, but there aren't too many of that. Then you have the commercial biobanks who have to spend a whole lot of money, you know, to do what I just described to you. And so their reimbursement is as big as, you know, the, the um, amount they spend, you know, to, to build the resource. And so a small biotech company who's trying to build on something may not be able to afford that, you know. So there hasn't been um, a way for just any researcher who needs this resource, you know, to be able to tap into something around the neighborhood, you know. You have to try and maybe collaborate with a group that has the in, the resource in-house or something. So it still has a long way to go as far as, you know, making it available, you know, for everybody. But like we have said initially, it's the main ingredient for research, at least translational research, but even basic research, because if you, you need basic research to move to translational, to move to precision, you know, so it's, um, it's an important resource. So, but we've come a long way, so there's hope. <laughs> I have faith. I have faith. Um, yeah, when, when you're talking about this, I'm also trying to imagine because I'm, I'm fascinated by this idea that you, you basically look at a little piece of, um, you know, what used to be a human being. Um, and, and you get all these helpful things that might help, you know, save lives later. But each person is unique, right? And so how many of these samples do you need in order to be able to come to a conclusion? Is it 
it's the situation where with big data and and because it's so specialized with DNA, you need a very big amount um, of you know different samples and different uh, tissues. Or is it the case that with one or two specimens, you're because the human body is similar enough, you're able to understand some things and um, just with a few cases be able to finally make a discovery there? Every study is different, and that's why you have to power every study. You know, you have to get a statistician to check and determine what number of samples you get to statistically power your study. So I'm sure you've seen studies where thousands of individuals have been used, which means thousands of samples, you know, and there are studies where much, much less than that. You know, you can have 10, you can have 50, you can have a couple of hundreds. So it all depends on what you're looking for. And um, each study too has its own level of conclusive evidence. I mean, when I do my little study with a couple of hundreds of patients, I'm not going to tell you I've answered the world's problem. I'm just going to tell you, this is what my study tells me, you know, and we, you have to move it to the next level, you know, where maybe you now increase the number of samples or ask another or work with another researcher where you have samples from a different, you know, locality and see if your results are still the same. So that's the intricacy of re research. So you can do three samples. It all depends on what you're doing. Ten usually would be, you know, but it all depends on what you're looking at. But when you want to answer big questions and make conclusive uh, statements, then you have to go big, you know. And that's why you, you see the big studies where, you know, they're, 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 they're looking for everybody around the U.S. All of us study, you know, all of us now study. They want as many people as possible, you know, so... Everything depends on what you're trying to achieve. And of course, you have to um, statistically back up, you know, your conclusion, you know, and the power of your study. So, yeah. So that, that's why biobanking's uh, donations are so important in the end, because everything rests on the ability to have enough of a, a sample to be able to draw some conclusion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We, we, it, it would be nice if... Um, there could be tons and tons and tons of, you know, materials in the biobank and many, many, many biobanks. I mean, the, the, the idea would be to have biobanks just everywhere so everybody can have what they want. And this, the, the saying in the biobank industry is a full biobank is not serving the purpose. You know, your biobank should be empty because you should be dishing out, you know, your materials for research. And... Um, because that's what that's the purpose why you're maintaining a biobank. You want to give people material to work with. But you know, I would say you also want to have as many biobanks as possible so that everybody who needs the material can have it. But unfortunately that's not the case. But is your vision a little bit like a big network of libraries, biobanks like libraries where they can loan in all parts of the world and exchange and, and be able to share that knowledge? Yes, and even beyond that, my vision is that of every hospital, every patient in a hospital being a donor. 
like you say, it's a vision, you know? I call it the research ready hospital, where when you step into a hospital, that hospital already knows about research. Everybody knows about donation, and there is a system already in the hospital that makes everybody a donor. Can you even imagine that? So that you have the resources in every Next episode on Healthcare Focus. Keeping up with the trend on uh, big data and genomics, we're going to dive into policy, big data and genomics policy. James Hugh, Executive Director of the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, as well as the Associate Provost of the University of Massachusetts, Boston, is going to look at the topic with us, looking at privacy interdependency, medical and non-medical policy, and proactive versus reactive law setting. That's coming up next in the next episode of Healthcare Focus.